Today I'm joined by one of the UK's top critics, who is also one of Girls on Film's male allies, Mark Kermode. Here he is on The Woman King. You know, I, I'm very much somebody who thinks that all the best performances are to do with physical performance rather than verbal performance. And I think that, you know, Viola Davis in that film is just like, you just go, okay, wow, that's, you know, that's just such a, you know, it's a brilliant performance. But she's surrounded by brilliant performances. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello and welcome to Girls on Film. I'm Anna Smith, and my guest today is Mark Kermode, film critic for The Observer, co-presenter of BBC Radio 4's Screenshot alongside Ellen E. Jones, host of his own film music programme on Scala Radio, and co-presenter of Kermode and Mayo's Take podcast. When Mark expressed a wish to come on Girls on Film, we said yes, and we asked you, our listeners, via social media, to choose two recent films for us to discuss. Enjoy. Mark, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It is so lovely to have you. I've wanted you on the pod for a long time, so thank you for joining us. We know you're a feminist ally, so we're very pleased to have you here. Um, We're going to talk about what the public have been voting for us to discuss. Yes. Uh, First of all, do you have any thoughts on award season favourites this year? Is anything standing out for you? Do you get engaged with award season? Almost not at all. I mean, the, (laughs) the point of it is, I think anyone who who's thought seriously about film understands that all awards are essentially nonsense but that doesn't mean they're not fun and it doesn't mean they don't have a purpose so for example after sun doing brilliantly at the biffers is very good for it and you know a podcast like yours drawing attention to the movies that stood out for you will do well for those movies so if we asked you to be one of our critic voters in the girls on film awards for 2023 would you say yes yeah of course because i because it's like as i said the whole point about it is as long as everyone understands that the point of award ceremonies is to draw attentions to film films that you think deserve attention it's not really to do with saying that one film is better than any other film, you know, and, and also if, if, if it's awards to dress up, which is always nice. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's what we uh, try to do on Girls on Film. As you know, with our awards, we try to do something different and reward films that perhaps might not be recognised as you have done in your yeah. own selections. Um, so the films that we wanted to discuss today, we gave our listeners and our social media followers four choices. Um, we chose some female-focused films of 2022, that some of which were considered controversial. Um, the four films they were going to vote for were Blonde, Don't Worry Darling, The Souvenir Part 2 and The Woman King. Yeah. And I can now reveal that the one with the most votes is Don't Worry Darling. Why does that not surprise yeah, It didn't surprise me either, to be honest. Welcome to the Victory Project. We're all here because we believe in the mission. What are we doing? Changing the world. What are we doing? Changing the world. That's right. What do you think 
they're really doing out there. What do you mean? There's a lot of social media interest in this film, right? Um, and I wanted to start, Mark, by saying, personally, I am frustrated by the amount of column inches spent on the gossip around this film. And I'd quite, I also felt there was some pretty gendered reporting going on. So I'd like to acknowledge that, but kind of focus on the film itself. I think perhaps what we should do, Mark, is talk about it briefly, for no spoilers, and then sure. maybe have a little warning for any of the listeners who want to avoid spoilers um, yeah. and talk, talk about the ending. Um, so... I want to ask you first what you... I actually have deliberately avoided your point of view on this, so I want okay, you to tell sorry. me now what you think of Don't Worry, Darling. I think it's very meh, and I'll tell you exactly why. Um, I think one of the things that I've always had a, a, a bit of a bugbear about is... Well, there's a phrase at the moment which is elevated horror, um, and elevated horror is nonsense. There's no such thing as elevated horror. Horror <laughs> is horror. Some of it's elevated, some of it is... Base, but there is no such thing as elevated horror. There is also a weird habit of the film industry, you know, pop will eat itself, the film industry eating itself and regurgitating itself. And sometimes that happens interestingly and sometimes it happens in a way which is, which is less interesting. My feeling about Don't Worry Darling is that it is not to the Stepford Wives what, what Get Out was to Ira Levin. So essentially, in Don't Worry Darling, you have a setup in which there is uh, a couple living in an apparently idyllic, in inverted commas, because it never seems idyllic, it always seems to be completely, you know, construct, in an idyllic desert throwback retro community in which the men drive gleaming 50s cars and have, or 50s, 60s, and have, you know, madmen suits, and the women wear, you know, petticoats and, you know, uh, dresses and stay at home all day and make house and it's clear from the outset that something is wrong it's clear from the outset that something is incredibly wrong that none of this is none of this is what it seems to be and then the film then proceeds to sort of lead us down a couple of paths before revealing what the nature of its central conceit is so my problem without you know spoiling anything is that at the very beginning of the film I went okay yes yeah, so it's one of four things which one is it and then they reveal and you go, oh, it's that one. And as somebody who was a really big fan of The Stepford Wives, the, the, the novel of The Stepford Wives and the film of The Stepford Wives by Brian Forbes, which, of course, actually had a very mixed reaction from critics and actually specifically feminist critics when it first came out. When some feminist writers saw Stepford Wives, they thought either, OK, it's ripping off our ideas or worse than that, it's parodying them. It's doing something that is, you know, that is somehow cynical. And I, I'd never thought that was the case, um, partly because I saw it a little bit later on. And, you know, by that point, the dust had settled. I had always thought that Stepford Wives was always taken as a parable about, um, you know, the male oppression of women and uh, the consumerist nature of uh, marriage. And, and all of Ira Levin's stories are basically shaggy dog stories. They're all what-if stories. So if you look at Rosemary's Baby... The what if story of Rosemary's baby is she's worried that if she marries outside of the Catholic Church, something terrible will happen. And it does. She ends up giving birth to the devil. Spoiler. Um, you know, no, but, you know, <laughs> no, so I, I think know. with Rosemary's baby, <laughs> everybody knows that. I'm not. But, you know, and in the case of the Stepford Wives, and this is not a spoiler because I'm not talking about um, Don't Worry Darling. But if you, you know, if you don't know the Stepford Wives, stop now. But somebody goes to a community where all the women seem to be Barbie dolls. And the punchline is they are literally Barbie dolls, you know, that, that happen to have been animated. 
Levin wrote horror with a sort of satirical underpinning so that people think that Rosemary's Baby is one of the scariest movies ever made. But it's a satire. People think that Stepford Wives is a kind of, you know, weird science fiction film, but it's a satire. They are both, and you could, the same is probably true of Boys from Brazil. I think the problem with Don't Worry Darling is that it's much more of a science fiction film that just takes an awfully long time to play its hand. And I think there are things in it that are great. I love some of the design. I think some of the performances are very good. I think Florence Pugh is brilliant in every scene. I think Harry Styles is at very best adequate. And I think the problem that you have is if you put Harry Styles in the same frame as Florence Pugh, adequate suddenly starts to seem inadequate. That's hopefully without giving away, without spoiling it. I hope that's, so that's my, I, I think it's fine. I think it's way too long. I think it has good and bad elements in it. I think even if none of the controversy had happened, I don't think it would have been one of my favourite films of the year, partly because I am looking at it and going, yeah, that's the Stepford Wives. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear, you know, someone with your wealth of film knowledge is going to bring a lot to the table of this film. I wonder if some of the younger viewers that perhaps might be attracted to this due to the cast more than the themes might Mm -hmm. be more surprised by what they see. Um, I certainly, I agree that it is a little on the long side and I did feel that it took too long to give the reveal and perhaps didn't explore the reveal for long enough but I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed the build-up I did not have any problem being in this world with these characters and wondering which of the possible outcomes it was going to be or how they were going to spin it I thought Florence Pugh was terrific I actually thought Harry Styles was more than adequate I thought Chris Pine was brilliant as Frank Chris Pine is kind great. of cult Chris Pine is great, leader yeah. uh, Olivia Wilde or herself also very good in the role of Bunny um, in a really strong cast and beautifully styled I thought Florence's character was uh, we're going to get into spoiler territory in a minute but um, okay. uh, was was very well structured um i thought she was a heroine to root for in every sense and and that's why her the casting is so key there is that you're really behind her aren't you because everybody loves her the one thing they ask of us is to stay here where it's safe everyone is acting like i'm crazy and i'm not crazy Our life together. We could lose this. I don't trust it. And I don't want to be here anymore. And at this point, I'd say let's move into spoilers. So please pause and come back later um, for our next choice if if you haven't seen it and don't want it spoiled. so, Mark, I, I feel um, that the way this film moves increasingly into a feminist space made it increasingly interesting to me, even if perhaps the execution wasn't perfect. I think the reveal that, you know, it's basically a community for toxic males who are trying to control women in the real world in basic terms by by, by large amount. Um, I thought that was interesting, um, not massively original but it had I hadn't seen it recently in a sci-fi directed by a woman put it that way um, and also co-written by a woman and I've watched this with girlfriends and male friends and it, it 
I wonder, I don't like to generalise about gender differences or people's different responses, but I'd like your view on this. I found that women really responded to it emotionally because they understand what it's like to, you know, be gaslit or to, to have someone not understand you know, what you're saying, I'm sure men experience this too, but in particular, the way it's portrayed in this film, it's focusing on women's experience with men who feel threatened by them and trying to undermine them, not listening to what they say, trying to make them feel like they're mad. Uh, And I think all that really resonates with a modern female audience, at least uh, the people that I've spoken to. Well, the thing I'd say is firstly, of course, you're absolutely right that if this resonates with you and with with the audience you're talking about, then everything I'm saying is irrelevant. And, that, and, and I'm not saying that as a, as a kind of... Because I think it is irrelevant. I think, clearly, audiences do respond to films differently, and it is absolutely true that part of what I'm doing... It's, and it's not, incidentally, just that I'm male. It's that I'm male and that I'm white and that I'm middle class and that I'm the age that I am and that I have spent, you know, however many years of my life doing what I've been doing. So there's a number of factors in that. What I would say is that from my point of view, the feminism of that film, it's not that the feminism increases as the film, it's it's there at the beginning. I mean, the, there, you know, the, the whole point about, and I, incidentally, I speak as somebody who is really you know, stylistically seduced by the 50s and the 60s. You know, I have an old 50s American car. So, you know, part of me looks at that and and goes, wow, you know, that actually looks great, doesn't it? But I understand from the very beginning, because anybody who knows anything about those periods, you know, any, any sentient human knows that they weren't what they looked like. So for me, everything about that world is toxic from the very beginning. When it then gets into, oh, you know, there's a, there's a secret thing and they're all going through a hole in the mountain and actually the people are avatars and their body... I'm sorry, we've said we're into spoiler yeah, territory now. It's like you're going at the beginning and go, okay, so, so what is it? So either it's a virtual reality thing or it's all in a dream or it's a robot or it's... Gonna, and then you go, oh, no, it's a dream. It's, that's what it is. It's a, it's a VR dream and they're actually both lying on, on in bed. And, but it doesn't matter. The, the, the MacGuffin of how you're explaining it doesn't matter. Not the MacGuffin, the, the, the thing about how you're explaining it doesn't matter what matters is you've created a world which is clearly toxic and poisonous but looks beautiful you know it's like a cake that's absolutely full of poison but looks really tasty and in a way the film would have worked better for me if they'd never they'd never even solved it i mean the reason this is the stepford wives is she goes to stepford she loves her husband she thinks her husband loves her she realizes that everybody else in stepford looks like a barbie doll she makes friends with somebody who is uh, you know slightly on the edge of women's lips she's oh, i've been to a few women's live meetings suddenly that person has a pauline change and suddenly turns into a barbie doll and then the central character played by Catherine ross is literally taken to the manor where she meets the robot version of herself who her husband has signed up to replace her because everyone in that town is Nanette Newman. And that, and it's 90 minutes long, whatever it is, and it's brilliantly chilling, and it's a shaggy dog story. And it, that's the punchline. The punchline is that she meets the robot, and the film ends. It is a great film. In, I mean, you're selling this to the listeners who haven't seen it. I love that. Good well, recommendation. Well, I've spoiled it for the listeners as well, but what I'm saying is it's so much simpler. Now, compare that to Get Out, okay? Get Out is a version of Stepford Wives, but it's a version of Stepford Wives in which you've, you know, you've, you've inverted the, 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 the gender battle 
to a racial battle. And you've done it in a really, really clever way because the whole point, the, reasons, the reason Get Out works is that the, in, in exactly the same way as the central character in, in, um, in Stepford Wives thinks that her husband loves her. And he thinks that he loves her too. He just would like her to be a robot. There's the whole thing in Get Out about, it's, they're not racists, they're incredibly bleeding heart middle-class liberals who are in fact incredible racists. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the smart side of it. I think the thing with Don't Worry Darling is that it's, it's much less complicated than that. It is much more, this is a male-dominated vision of the world and it's clearly toxic and it's clearly impossible and it's what's what's the gizmo. But that's okay go, that it's less complicated. It's okay that it's not get out. It's okay that it's not the step for wise. It's don't worry, darling. And it does what it does well, I think. Which, is, which, which, which brings me back to the point that I made before, Anna, which is that in the end, from the audience's point of view, if they get that from it, and if you get that from it, and you know you're smart, you've seen loads of movies, and you and you know and and you're 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 getting that from it. So part of it is a prejudice on my part, and it is. It's not it's not a prejudice against telling that story. It's a prejudice against that story being retold in a way that I think is kind of fairly pedestrian. Mm -hmm. That's not to say I don't think that there are things in it that are good. I think the scene in the dinner table when yeah. Florence Pugh confronts. Chris Pine is brilliantly done, and I and 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 I don't care what's happening with any of the other characters. I I I will fly the flag for saying that I don't think Harry Styles is very good. I mean, I I you know I know this is in a, in a, in, a, in the end this just comes down to an opinion thing. I think he's very very two dimensional. There is an argument that well that character should be very very yes. two dimensional, and in fact that the, you you could argue that there is something subversive about the fact that Florence Pugh's character is utterly three-dimensional even when she's living in a two-dimensional world and he is utterly two-dimensional in every frame. The only thing is I don't think that that's deliberate. It's quite handy, isn't it? <laughs> it's quite it's quite yeah, it's quite it's quite handy, yeah. but I don't, you know, but I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, um, I always come back to this thing that um uh, Miranda Sawyer said. She's Miranda Sawyer said in the end there is only one review and the review is it's all right if you like that sort of thing. And <laughs> Yeah. And and actually, there is a great truth in it, which is if it works for you, and if you know, if you've spoken to people who have got out of it what you have got out of it, then it then it demonstrably works. And I don't have any answer to that other than you know I've been wrong a million times before, and and I absolutely concede your point that of course it makes a difference that I'm watching it from my perspective. But that's what we do as critics, and I really value, of course, of course your opinion always. That's why I wanted to get you on because it's been fascinating hearing you talk about that from such an informed perspective for that genre. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, we'll agree to slightly disagree, but yet in some ways agree <laughs> on that one. Um, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah, it's all good. So next up, we're going to go for our second choice, uh, what the public voted for second, and we're just going to have a bit of a shorter time on this one. But I'm really pleased they went for this one, and it is The Woman King. You are called to join the King's Guard. No kingdom in all of Africa shares this privilege. Train hard, fight harder. We fear no one. And we fear no pain. I offer you a choice. Fight or we die. So Viola Davis, I think, absolutely tremendous in this. I mean, one of the things that excited me about this film, obviously, is someone who hosts feminist film podcasts, is the level of representation in this. It's a film about African 
female warriors, um, you know, predominantly female black cast, um, female director, um, really interesting from, from a race and gender perspective. And again, I, I speak as knowing that I'm a white feminist here, um, but we do love to champion this kind of thing on the podcast. And it, not only that, of course, all that is a given. I'm excited about that. I thought it was very good. And, you know, what a relief when you see a film that has all that ticks all those boxes for us, but is really gripping, has a sort of gladiator worthy kind of accessible epic arc. Um, not faultless by any stretch, but I felt it was moving, entertaining, had very strong characters and performances and it kind of hit you in the gut ultimately. I really liked it. Yeah. I thought it was, I, I loved the physicality of it. I loved how physical the performances were. I loved the choreography of it. I loved the choreography of the, of the, the action sequences. I loved, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm very much somebody who thinks that, uh, that all the best performances are to do with, with, with physical performance rather than verbal performance. And I think that, you know, Viola Davis in that film is just like, you just go, okay, wow, that's, you know, that's just such a you know it's a brilliant performance but she's surrounded by brilliant performances i love the way it looked i love the evocation of the world that it's created for the movie i love the score and i was you know i was i was kind of surprised but not surprised just by the level of vitriol of stuff that we got sent before the film had even opened yeah i'm so sorry to hear that but i, I was no, very it's, hey yeah. it's, it's water off a duck's back to me because i just what what I did was I said to to our producer, yeah, we we just not we're not doing any of that because I'll you know I'll read one of those emails after the film is out from somebody who actually appears to have seen yeah, the film exactly. But in, but until that point, the cut and paste people can get lost. No, I thought the Woman King was great. I really enjoyed it. I think it's physical. It's got an action packed story which I really like, and I like the characters. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I don't know the story. And then yes, you look up the history, and oh, it's you know the history is much more complicated. And I'd like to remind everybody that Braveheart won the Oscar for Best Picture. You go, I'm sorry. Do not come round here pissing and moaning about historical accuracy <laughs> when Braveheart won an award for Best Picture, and literally, Braveheart is one of the. I mean. Quite, I, my problem with Braveheart is not that it's historically inaccurate. My problem with Braveheart is it is a terrible film. <laughs> it is an absolutely terrible piece of huffing, puffing filmmaking. Well, I think we both recommend that film to anyone who hasn't seen it yet. I know it did pretty well at the box office in the UK, which I'm really happy yeah. about, as well as the US. So absolutely thrilled that such a great, big budget feminist film uh, did so well. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. Thank you for thoughts on that, Mark. I wanted to ask about some of your personal projects, actually, because you recently, I believe, published a list of your top 20 rock documentaries. I did. Yes. Now, any female ones in that? I think there were. Yeah, I mean, the, if you look at the history of rock docs, it will tend to skew male because the history of rock and roll in the way in which the, um, you know, in the way in which it's kind of received is, oh, you know, well, you think about a rock band and you could conjure up a rock band in your head. And, you know, what do you come up with? Well, you know, you come up with the Rolling Stones and you come up with, uh, you know, like all the kind of cliches. Now, as I said, I do think that all lists are kind of inherently silly. But I also think that lists are kind of interesting because they tell you something about, you know, what you are personally interested in yeah and what i was interested in doing with that list was trying to do something that wasn't just all the the standards okay so if you look i'm just i've literally just called it up in front of me because i'm forgetting why so summer of soul is my favorite 
Love and it. Summer of Soul is brilliant. I don't know whether you've seen it, but it's I, have, I, I thought it was absolutely wonderful. And so many fantastic uh, performances. And I think Mahalia Jackson, you know, is just, oh. you know, duetting with Mavis Staples is just amazing. Magical. 1969 was a change of era in the black community. The styles were changing. Music was changing. And revolution was coming together. We are a new people. We are a beautiful people. That concert took my life from black and white into color. Nina Simone in that film is like pretty much at the height of her powers. And what I, the reason I was really interested in it was because it's, it's the film that isn't Woodstock. And in fact, in my list, I didn't have Mike Wadley's Woodstock, which is considered by many people to be the greatest, you know, rock doc of all time. But you go, well, these, things, these two events happened and one of them got a huge film made about it and the other one kind of got overlooked even though it was filmed, which is why the subtitle of it was The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. At number seven, I had Amazing Grace, which is the oh, film about Aretha Franklin, which we had waited all that time for because Sidney Pollock had shot it, but he shot it without um, clapperboarding. Consequently, wasn't, they weren't able to sync the sound and the picture for ages and ages and ages. A film called Heavy Load I'm really proud of having in there because I don't know whether you've ever seen that, but it is a documentary about a British punk band. And it's a kind of, it's a thrilling riposte to disabled prejudices. This band were the front line of this um, campaign called Stay Out Late, which was the campaign for people with special needs to be able to stay out late enough to see gigs. And I, it's just, it's a, it's a really, really, really wonderful piece of work. And then, you know, behind the camera, the, one of the first things I did was I, I wanted to have Andy Tiemann as Dig because I think that, you know, that's like one of the great rock docs of all time. And I was talking to Andy Tiemann because she just made this documentary about her father dying. Yes, and, which and, we and featured you know, on the podcast Last Fight Home, yes. Which is remarkable. Oh, it's a really remarkable piece of work. But I think Dig is like almost the ultimate rock doc. You know, it's so fantastically gets into that mad battle between the Brian Jonestown Massacre and the Dandy Warhols. Gentlemen, I want to introduce a band that knows where I live, the Brian Jonestown Massacre. Anton created the scene and everyone else has built upon it. The music is a genius. Tell me right now you've never ever heard the Dandy Warhols before. I sneeze and it's come up. <laughs> Is that blood on you? Yeah. From where? From Your people's hand. faces. So what I was trying to do was not simply do the same old, um, you know, not just round up the usual suspects. And there was a really nice thing that um, Cotto Reardon, uh, Rocky Reardon, I think she goes on, put something on Twitter saying, wow, it was really nice to see somebody not just picking all the, the, the usuals. I must go and see uh, Heavy Load, which I was really pleased about. So yeah. That's nice. It's lovely, as we try to do, is to pick out little gems that people might not have heard of. And I've got a couple of wrecks there that I didn't know about, so thank you. Talking of lists, Sight and Sound poll, very interesting this time. For the first time, a female filmmaker has taken the number one spot, and that's for the 1975 film Jean Dielman. Is that one uh, that you've enjoyed in the past, Mark? Here's the thing with Jan Dillman. So I did a really, I, we, we talked about it at MK3D. Um, so I saw Jan Dillman in, I think I saw it in the, in the Arban in Hume, okay, when I was in Manchester. I thought it was good. I'm a, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a fan of Chantal Ackerman. I think it's a, it was a good film. I, I, I will say straight off, I didn't see it and think, wow, this is a masterpiece. Then again, first time I saw Citizen Kane, I, you know, I was being told it was the best film ever made and I just thought I didn't realise how funny Citizen Kane was. So when um, Jan Dillman went, suddenly went to the top of the Sight and Sound poll and it was quite sudden, there was a lot of people throwing their hands up and going, you know, how, how, how has this happened? This must mm. have been fixed. 
Of course, if you'd had your ear to the ground, you'll know that it didn't come out of nowhere. Jeanne Dillon has always been talked about as very respectfully. Interestingly enough, earlier on this year, I was doing a piece about Todd Haynes's safe and I interviewed Christine Vachon. And I was asking her how they pitched Safe, Safe, which is a Todd Haynes movie about total allergy syndrome, which has a breakthrough performance by Julianne Moore. And before that, Todd had made Poison, which is a very, you know, very much a queer cinema classic. You know, it's it's kind of, you know, it's very out there and it's, you know, got a, a lot. There was a one one critic famously said that after watching it, they felt they needed to bathe in Clorox, <laughs> um, which is always a great recommendation. Anyway, I said to Christine, I said, how, how did you pitch the film to the financiers? And she said, well, what we wanted to do was we wanted to say, you know, like Jeanne Dillman, but we knew that if we said those words out loud, they'd go, thank you, there's the door. Because everybody thinks it's a great film, but nobody thinks it would ever make any money. And then Mark Jenkin, who, who's, when he made uh, Ennis Main, and you know, I know Mark quite well, um, we were having a conversation and he said that he had read a piece by somebody who had said, um, you know, he's clearly influenced by, by uh, Chantal Ackerman and by Jeanne, Jeanne Dillman in particular. And Mark thought, oh God, yes. I, I hadn't thought of that, but actually now that you say it, yes, I am. Amazing. So when Mark was programming his season of the films, there's a season at the BFI called The Genetic Roots of Ennis Main. He programmed Jeanne Dillman. Everyone at the BFI at that point knew that Jeanne <laughs> Dillman was going to come up, but they weren't allowed to say anything. So Mark said, it's like, they was really funny. They all kept <laughs> these poker faces going, oh yeah, that's fine. Yeah, you might want to do that. That might be an interesting <laughs> idea. Et si tu avais envie de faire l'amour avec lui Les ballets, tu sais, ça n'avait aucune importance, ça ne faisait rien. Et tu sais faire l'amour, comme tu dis, c'était un détail. Et puis je t'avais. Et puis il n'était pas si laid que ça. Avec quelqu'un que tu aimes. Ouf, tu sais. En tout cas, moi, si j'étais une femme, je ne saurais vraiment pas faire l'amour avec quelqu'un que je n'aime pas complètement. Mais tu ne peux pas savoir, tu n'es pas une femme. I was looking back through... Um... I just did a word search on, you know, stuff that I've done and stuff that I've written about. I just literally put in Chantal Ackerman, Jeanne Dillman. And I realized that over the last few years, it had started to come up more and more often. And of course, it had been championed by people like um, Joanna Hogg and the Anossa Moores people. And so it didn't come out of nowhere. It's always been a film that was very, very respected. There was a groundswell of discussion of it happening below the radar. And then... It surfaced above the radar and it, and you know, so when we were at the BFI, I said, okay, this is a fairly cine literate audience. I said, okay, honesty time. How many of you have seen it? And they being a very honest audience, I think about 10 people put their hand up. Now, here's the interesting thing. That doesn't mean it's, it's wrong. And I was having this discussion with Simon Mayo and I said, you know, it's like when you were at Radio 1 and you used to talk about Nick Drake and no one knew who, who the hell Nick Drake was. I didn't know who the hell Nick Drake was. And you used to love Nick Drake. And now everybody thinks Nick Drake is a genius, was a genius. It's like that. It's like, of course, those people are going to have opinions that are, slight, you know, are slightly digging it. It didn't come out of nowhere. It was always there. It, there was a build up to it. It wasn't sudden or anything. And so people throwing their hands up and going, whoa. What do you mean it's not Citizen I mean, imagine, you remember the fuss when Vertigo knocked, um, you know, Citizen Kane off the top spot. As Kim Newman always said about that, incidentally, that was a triumph of popularism because Citizen Kane died at the box office. I mean, for very, various complicated reasons. But Vertigo was a hit. So 
I thought it was actually really interesting that uh, Jean Dillman w w went in at number one, and I thought, oh, I must go back and watch it again. Because I've always, I mean, you know, as I said, I saw it in uh, the Arbor, and I thought it was good. I didn't think it was brilliant. I haven't seen it in a very long time, but I knew that there was a groundswell of people saying it's really, really interesting. And I'm really looking forward to going back to see it. One thing I would say to anyone is it's not perhaps necessarily the easiest way into Chantal Ackerman. You know, I mean, there are other ways in, but hey, how great that it's topped the poll. Well, I think it was, it was hugely exciting because for me, I mean, what I think what you're sort of hinting out there is that there has been an accepted canon for a long time. And often when people make these lists, which I'm also slightly dubious about, um, there's a sort of knee-jerk reaction. Oh, we have to have the Godfather in there. We have to have Citizen Kane in there. And this is wonderful to shake it up a bit. Um, I mean, looking back on Girls on Film, it was featured on episode 18 of our podcast. Well, so again, go. it's always been there. Um, so very happy about that. Um, for you, Mark, um, you, you mentioned um, your your podcast. I mean, will you be doing your best and worst films of the year again? Well, you know, honestly, Anna, here's, here's the honest truth. The more, the older I get and the more crotchety I become, the, the more, the more I think it, you know, I mean, I've done a couple of lists. I did a thing for The Observer and I've, you know, and I've, I just sort of run down the, the, the thing for the, for, um, you know, for the, for Kermit and Mayo's podcast. But I do, I do think, um, I mean, I have, a, I, I have an aversion to lists, and believe me, I've done enough of them. And also, it's weird, because I'm literally like the character out of High Fidelity, who, you know, spent most of his early life making lists <laughs> of things, you know. I used to work, this is a true story, I used to work at City Life magazine, there was a guy working there called Ed Glynard. And Ed Glynard, used to, he's a brilliant news journalist, and he used to have a list of the top ten cups of tea he had ever had pinned on the, on the you know. But in a way, it's kind of it's that sort of obsessive attention to detail is sometimes very important if you're going to be an investigative journalist who has to find the, you know, the right. find, yeah. find the gem. The only thing I would say is every year I am amazed by how many brilliant films there are. Yes. Every year I'm reminded of the fact that Barry Norman said in any given year, the percentage of good and bad films is pretty much the same. It's just to do with what you see. Um, and I think the choice of, you know, what films are available for people to see is on the one hand, multiplex is less and less interesting. On the other hand, streaming services, you know, everything's there. I mean, Jean Dillman's going to be on uh, the BFI player. If not now, then, you know, very, very soon. And you'll be able to, to watch it. And many of these other films that I've talked about, you'll be able to watch them. They'll be there. Hooray. That's a that's a great thing. You know, when I was a kid, which was in a previous century and, you know, a long time ago, Somebody said to you, well, have you ever seen Eraserhead? You go, no. And then you'd have to wait until Eraserhead turned up at the Scala or the Phoenix or the, you know, Screen on the Green. And then you go, oh, I really like, what's it? What's the director's name? David Lunch? Have you heard of David Lunch? Oh, no, so let's find a magazine which has got his name written in it. That was what it used to be like. So m most of my listing happens now of me going back to all the stuff that I missed, to all the stuff that I I, you know, I, I, I wish I'd paid more attention to at the time. You know, I mean, I grew up watching horror movies and I absolutely loved, loved doing that. But I missed so much. I'm still enthusiastic about modern cinema. I still love how many great movies there are every year. But I just, you know, I kind of feel I can almost spend the rest of my life watching silent movies that I didn't know until Neil Brand told me about them, you know. But that's the beauty of this industry. There are always more films to see. However much we, for our jobs, watch them and watch them, watch them. There are always gaps, and that's why I always find people it very snobby. If people go, oh, you haven't seen this, we can't physically see everything. So, no, um, no, I know. <laughs> it's no, just not possible. You absolutely, you absolutely can't, and that's why if that sight and sound list makes one person go and watch a Chantal Ackerman yeah. film, then great. Yeah. You know, I mean, better that than just than repeating once again, Citizen Kane is the greatest movie ever made. Incidentally, 
I love Citizen Kane. I think Citizen Kane's a fantastic film. I think there was, there was on the radio this morning. There was a you know piece, the Melvin Bragg piece, in which there was a whole bunch of people, very smart academics, talking about Citizen Kane. I was fascinated. I heard stuff that I hadn't heard before. But you know, but everyone knows it's yeah, great. Exactly. You know? Let, let's broaden it a bit. Um, well, Mark, you're such a great supporter of girls on film, and I want to thank you for that. And we oh, cool. we name you as a feminist ally. So I wanted to ask you to wrap up um, from your perspective. You know, yes, you're a white man, but you know a little bit about the industry, however much you might deny it. Do you think the industry is changing for the better in terms of the kind of things that we're talking about here? Women in front of the camera, women behind the camera, gender parity. I think it is. I mean, I'm not the person to ask, but I th- you know, but since you asked me, I think it is. I mean, if I just look at my own, my own prejudices or my own um, view of cinema, in the last 20 or 30 years, it's radically changed. Um, I think, I'm pretty certain that 20 or 30 years ago, if you'd asked me to name my top 10 films of all time, I don't think there would have been one that wasn't directed, I mean, I hate to say this, but I think it's true, that wasn't directed by a, you know, by a bloke. I'm, I, I can't remember what the list would have, but I'm pretty sure that would be the case. I think if you asked me now, that wouldn't be the case. Partly that's because I've rediscovered films from the past. Partly it's because there are now, I mean, you know, we did a, well, this will, this will strike a chord with you because, you know, during lockdown, I was doing the film review on the news channel, which I'm shame it's finished, but, you know, we had a good run. And, you know, when I wasn't doing it, you were doing it. And we both did a couple of programmes, more than a couple of programmes from home, in which rather than sitting talking to Jane, which is always great because Jane is such an advocate of the arts. I mean, she's so, you know, she should have her own film programme. I mean, she is such a smart kid. She's funny and she's sharp and she watches stuff and she's interested and... You know, her wife's into superhero movies and so she, you know, so she's watched all of those. So even though she's not a superhero fan, but she sits down and watches this stuff because her partner is is interested in it. So anyway, we did we did shows in which we would sit at home and we would write scripts. You would write a script and I would write a script and then you'd read them to camera and the camera would be operated by, I think, well, in your case, you know, I presume your partner, yes. in my case, my son, yes. who was home from Manchester, you know, on a on an iPhone. And it was kind of, there was a rhythm to doing it, but it was quite, it, it was, I'm not making a case, but there was a rhythm to doing it, but it took quite a lot of prep. Yes. I got to the end of one of those shows in which I'd reviewed six films that were out that week. And it was only after we'd signed it off that I realised that every single one was directed by a woman and I hadn't even noticed. Now, that was the point at which I went, oh, okay, something is changing. Not the fact that every single film was directed by a woman, but the fact that I hadn't noticed that it was. And I thought, actually, one of the things that happened during lockdown, when big blockbuster cinema was having a really hard time because cinemas were closed, there was suddenly everyone scrabbling around looking for other stuff. And a lot of the time, the stuff is out there, but it just wasn't finding its way into the mainstream multiplexes. You know, I think opportunities for women in the film industry have got better. I still still think it's massively imbalanced. I think opportunities for women in film criticism have got better. I still think it's massively imbalanced. I think it would be less imbalanced when an old dinosaur like me finally shuts up. Well, you've been very self-deprecating, but we are also big fans of yours, Mark. Um, But thank you, as a male film critic, for always being so generous and making space for the people around you and the people coming up um, of all genders, because I think that's a really important thing. And obviously that's what 
I'm also trying to do on this podcast. So no, and you do, and you. you do a brilliant job of it. And I, you know, that's why the podcast is is you know is is so great. And I actually, and I think also, you look at the success of what you're doing. Ask yourself whether that would have been possible 10, 20 years ago. I mean, obviously, podcasting didn't exist then, but but just, I just, I think something's changed. It's we're nowhere near enough, but something has changed. Definitely, definitely. I mean, it's based on an idea I had many years ago and we were waiting for the world to be ready and hopefully the world is finally ready and we're giving it a little push. So thank you again, Mark, for joining Girls on Film. It's been an absolute delight to have you on. Thank you for having me. I hope we'll have you back on again sometime. And um, You know where I am. (laughs) Yeah, excellent. All right, well, thanks ever so much. You take care. That was film critic and Girls on Film ally Mark Kermode. You can buy Don't Worry Darling on all the usual platforms in the UK. And The Woman King will be available on digital on January the 30th and on DVD on February the 13th, 2023. Jeanne Dielman is available to stream on the BFI player in the Sight and Sound Greatest Films of All Time collection. It now includes over 50 titles from the top 100 to rent or for subscribers. The full top 100 will also screen at BFI Southbank throughout January, February and March 2023. Girls on Film is an HLA production, brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, audio editor Nick Wassell, intern Eleanor Hardy, and our principal partners, Vanessa Smith and Peter Brewer. You've been listening to me, Anna Smith. Thanks for listening. Have a great Christmas. We'll be back soon. Some things are worth fighting for.